Hello and welcome to She's Creative with me, Claire Hodgson. Each episode, I chat to a different woman or non-binary person who works in the media or publishing industries, discovering how they turned creativity into a career. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would love it if you could rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps boost us in the charts. If you would like to support the podcast, you can buy me a coffee on coffee.com slash she's creative pod. That's ko fi.com slash she's creative pod. My guest on this episode is Vice UK's executive editor, Zeng Singh. Zeng is an author, journalist, documentary host, and podcaster. She's a BBC Sounds host and author of the book series Forgotten Women. Zeng has also written for publications such as Vogue, The Guardian and BuzzFeed. Welcome Zeng. Hi, thanks for having me. No problem at all. Um, Just to start things off, where did you grow up and what did your parents do for a living? So I grew up in Singapore. Um, My mum used to be a psychologist but she basically became a stay-at-home mum when she had me and my brother and my dad works in business. When did you know that you wanted to work in the media? Really late on actually. Um, When I was at university I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I ended up applying for advertising grad schemes um, and literally like not even getting a single call back. Um, And then at the time I was doing my student newspaper for fun uh, because it was just a laugh and I had loads of friends who were doing it and I actually ended up winning what was then the Guardian Student Media Award Mm. uh, for Best Features Journalist and basically was totally surprised really taken aback Um, and then went to the prize ceremony and people were like oh do you want they just assumed I wanted to do it as a job which I honestly had never really considered before so I ended up kind of thinking oh I think maybe I should give this a try Mm. Um, because I'm very highly risk averse I ended up doing a master's in journalism to feel like I can be slightly more prepared Um, and then from then on just went off from there. Mm -hmm. And you were saying that you you did student newspaper stuff when you were at Cambridge Mm -hmm. did you think that was you know beneficial to your career? I think so because it let me try out a whole lot of different things and that's what I always tell people um, who are students Uh, when they approached me and asked for advice about getting into journalism. Um, I think the really good thing about doing student newspapers or any kind of student journalism is just get the chance to experiment and Mm -hmm. you get the chance to try a whole bunch of different things. So I did everything from taking photos for the theatre page to reviewing gigs to writing the what's hot and what's not column to writing features and it kind of gave me a real taste for the kind of stuff that I wanted to do and also mm-hmm. the kind of stuff that I just did not want to do. So, you know, I knew quite early on that I w- didn't want to be a conventional news reporter. And that really wasn't, you know, what I loved about journalism. Um, but I also kind of figured out early on that, you know, I really liked covering stuff like culture and lifestyle. So I think if you want to have a taste of journalism, I think getting involved with your student paper at university or college is a really good way to start out. Mm-hmm. And having went to an Oxbridge uni, do you think that that helped make, you know, for you to make connections and that kind of thing? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm trying to think of the people I did my student paper with. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are in the media now. Well, actually, I would say probably about a quarter of them. And um, I think what 
the people I went, I did my paper with um, have done is that they really excelled. And I don't know if that's because, you know, I did the paper with a lot of men and obviously the industry is still quite highly biased towards men. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that actually doing my postgrad at City University was what helped the most because in terms of the number of people who then went on to have journalism careers, um, in my year, very few people dropped out to do something else entirely. Um, Mm -hmm. That has really helped because that's created a kind of baked in network of people you have a common connection with and that you can then reach out to and, you know, touch base with, you know, we share job opportunities, we have, we share advice. Um, Most recently, someone I went to university doing my postgrad with uh, was asking for advice about how to unionize her workplace. Mm -hmm. So I think stuff like that has been really helpful. Mm -hmm. And your your MA, you did magazine journalism. What Mm -hmm. made you go down uh, that route rather than doing a general journalism master's? When I applied for it, I was obsessed with magazines, especially fashion and culture magazines. Um, You know, magazines like The Face, ID, Dazed, that was the kind of magazine journalism I wanted to go into. And it's been really interesting to see that, to ask myself, you know, would I still have done a magazine journalism degree if I was going into it now? Because obviously there's been a huge shift in magazine consumption. And I would say that the majority of people consume magazine content online and don't really think of it as magazine content. Mm-hmm. But at the time when I applied to City, it was either um, doing newspaper journalism, which I knew I didn't want to do, uh, doing magazine journalism or broadcast. And then there were more specific specialist niches like international journalism and data journalism. Um, I was hopeless with numbers. So that was never an option for me, that last one. Um, so, yeah, I mean, magazine journalism was basically what I started out wanting to do. And obviously my career has taken on quite a different turn from that. Do you think, would you recommend to students that want to do a specific kind of thing that they should do that specific course or do like a a broad journalism course? I feel like if you have quite a set idea of what you want to specialise in, then specialising in from a younger age isn't going to do you any harm. But Mm -hmm. I would say that don't get too hung up on what genre or magazine niche or you know, journalism publication you end up working in because, you know, I went into City with a ton of people who all thought that they would end up writing for the New Yorker and Mm -hmm. that, you know, none of us have ended up writing for the New Yorker. And that's not to say people haven't done excellent, amazing things, but they've managed to do them at publications that, you know, a student at the age of 21 starting their master's would not have thought of as being you know, the career choice for them. So they've gone on to specialist publications, to B2B um, publications. Um, I never thought I would end up working on what's essentially just a website. Um, I would say more important than choosing a specialism is actually just being open-minded to where your career might take you. Yeah, because absolutely. I think that I think that if you get too hung up on, you know, doing the classic, gonna apply for a grad scheme to get onto a newspaper, going to work as a newspaper reporter for a few years then I'm going to get hired and promoted up into being an editor having that kind of rigid career strategy I think is just going to hurt you in the long term because when you get exposed to new opportunities you should be able to assess them and think oh actually I'd really like to try this new thing rather Mm -hmm. than thinking to myself oh this does not fit into my five-year plan 
completely completely agree especially since you know there's so many less staff jobs now than there maybe was before um you in 2010 you worked as an intern for the guardian did that come from the competition that you said you won yeah yeah so it came from winning the guardian student media award so part of that was winning an internship and oh god it was it was actually a very traumatizing experience for me um because i had no idea what i was getting into um like i said i won that competition i didn't think i would i had you know at that point not even a kind of plan to get into journalism I just kind of turned up and immediately on my first day I just messed up really really bad um they sent me out to do vox pops for the first day of spring I think it was um and vox pops you know like when you have to go out and speak to people just random people off the screen yeah like a nice quote from them and I did do that and then I made the mistake of not asking them for all the things that vox pops needs phone age age, occupation and I came back and I just remember the look on my managing editor's face, like, oh no, what have I done? Um, and I was so depressed when I went back home that oh. day. I was like, oh God, I really just messed up on my first day. Um, luckily it was fine. Um, I feel like, especially when you're starting out, mistakes like that occupy such a large part of your brain that um, mm-hmm. yeah. they feel like such big catastrophes when they probably aren't they're probably just an annoying thing the managing editor had to deal with for one day and then probably forgot about but to me it felt huge um so that was my experience of working <laughs> briefly as an intern but it was you know it was a really exciting place to be because um and also at the time they had also had a bunch of other interns in and one of them was uh, Rennie Edo-Lodge, who became, you know, Rennie Edo-Lodge of I'm no long, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. Mm-hmm. And I feel like when we first met, I was like, okay, these are like, these are like my people. These are the people that, you know, these interns, I feel like we're going to do stuff. We're going to change stuff. So I'm I'm glad to see the, the kind of instinct I had or like prophecy I had proved to be correct, especially in Rennie's case. Um, but, you know, working at The Guardian for as an intern was very high pressure, I think. And I think that's why I reacted yeah. so badly to that first day when I made a really bad mistake. Do you have a lot of interns advice or work experience or anything like that? So we had people doing two week placements, um, which we've now decided to like phase out in favor of an internship. Mm-hmm. But having said that, that's all up in the air now with COVID. And I think that I think that a lot of publications now are trying to figure out a way to make internships and placements work in a pandemic time when you can't be in the office. Yeah. And especially if, you know, technically it should be slightly easier for people to be interns because you don't have to be in London to come to the office. But at the same time, I think there's also a kind of feeling that, you know, is it really a worthwhile experience for them to sit on countless Zoom meetings and then do a bit of transcribing? I don't know if that really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely seems like a challenge, especially with that, um, you know, when you don't meet someone in person, you don't get the same kind of gauge of their personality and that kind of thing. So it must be difficult to do that kind of thing just over Zoom. Um, is there any, just in terms of when things are back to normal, whenever that yeah. happens, um, is there any advice you would give to people doing things like internships or work experience? I would say try and differentiate yourself from everyone else. Um, There's a really excellent Dita Chakraborty interview in The Guardian about 
his advice for starting out in journalism, which I completely co-sign. And he basically says, you know, a lot of young people get into journalism, especially in, over the last few years. And they think, you know, well, I've got opinions. Um, I can put them across strongly. I want to write comment. And actually, I think that's one of the least useful skills you can have as a journalist writing comment. I think comment is a kind of skill that you acquire over years of working as a journalist and understanding what exactly the issues you're commenting on and like building insight and building context and thinking to yourself, well, I can say something insightful about this one issue. Um, comment doesn't work so well if you're just a student fresh out of university. So I would say that if you want to start out and distinguish yourself as an intern, really work on building skills as a reporter, you know, can you interview well? Can you find sources? Can you track someone down for a case study or as an interviewee or a source for a story? Um, are you able to interpret statistics and studies and understand you know, trends? I think those are the kind of skills that a lot of people need to cultivate to kind of distinguish themselves from like the vast majority of people who want to get into journalism. Mm -hmm. And I think that journalism is like a graft, you know? I don't think I think there are plenty of people who kind of think, oh, I can write something about this. And they kind of do a couple of things and they just kind of dip out because they realize it's not for them. And if you want to build a lasting career in journalism, it's much more important you build these kind of long lasting skills. And I think that, you know, a lot of people uh, don't really care for like the technical aspects of journalism. Um, you know, things like podcasting are, incredibly useful skills you know things like technical ability being able to drive is something that I wish I'd learned when I was a young journalist because it would have really opened a lot of things up for mm -hmm. me um stuff like that I think is really always worth emphasizing and also I think you know more general career skills like for instance you know understanding how to file your taxes understanding when to register for like your self-assessment the first the first year I was working in journalism, I literally had no idea you were meant to do these things. And I, as a result, got fined quite heavily by HMRC for failing <laughs> to file my tax return on time. So I think things like that are really, really useful skills. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you were saying, you know, when you started out, you, you were self-employed. Was that after your Guardian internship? Because I know you worked as the online editor at Wonderland in 2012 what was that in between time like so I did my master's at City and while I was doing my master's uh, one of the former alumni came in and gave a talk and he was at the time the editor of Wonderland magazine and I basically just went up to him and I said I love fashion magazines I would love to work at a magazine like anything anything you can give me I will jump at the opportunity so I ended up doing um, my placement which is part of my university degree at Wonderland and then after I graduated they gave me a job on a rolling contract so that's why I was employed as a freelancer mm -hmm. and at the time that was in I'd say that was in 2011 I think so this was when social media had not really taken off in the same way it had so as a result I found myself I found myself in charge of every single social media channel for the magazine, including updating the website, uh, which at the time I think was a WordPress or Blogspot. It was hosted on one of those like conventional blogging platforms. So I immediately got given the keys to 
its social media voice and the website copy and everything, which was a huge amount of responsibility. But because it was so early on in the age of Instagram and Twitter, mm -hmm. it kind of felt fine. It kind of felt like you could just play around and experiment. And it was really exciting to be able to build a magazine's voice in that way, because I don't think that any magazine would let a 21 year old in charge of that now. <laughs> um, when when did you start freelancing and um, pitching things on the on the side? So I started basically when I was working at Wonderland. And I think that the first ever freelance gig was quite that. I remember getting paid quite a good sum for, I can't remember how much it was at the time, um, was I was approached by a fashion brand, brand to write copy for its lookbook, which is a very mm. underrated way of making money. Um, and it was incredibly boring. It was for, I don't think I can name it, but it was for a high street brand that I think gets a quite a bad rep for being quite laddie. And uh, I was in charge of writing all the marketing copy for it. Uh, you know, so basically just finding... 50 different ways of describing a hoodie um so that was a very challenging writing exercise and that was the first proper bit of freelance that paid good money um and that was something that I was approached to write because they saw me writing for the magazine website online and I think they must have just been like well let's just give it to her then because she probably can like write fashion because she's been writing half the website mm -hmm. is that something you would recommend young journalists trying to get into is like a side hustle kind of thing I think so and this applies especially to people trying to break into culture and music so many music journalists I know um, have a very very healthy side hustle which they never ever talk about in writing stuff like artist bios where you know a record label will pay you to sit down with a new artist interview them for like an hour and then write up the kind of bio you see attached to press releases for an artist's mm -hmm. new record those are really lucrative and I think that a lot of people prefer not to talk about that side of uh, freelancing because it's not considered typical journalism but I think it's really useful because you know it helps to pay the bills in many cases it's more lucrative than the actual journalism itself. Mm -hmm. Do you have any kind of advice on how people get into that sort of thing do you think people are mainly approached or yeah. Being nice to PRs is a good start. I think that okay. it's become quite, I always feel bad when I see people posting PR emails online yeah. and laughing at them and being like, oh my God, which poor Sado had to find a Bridgerton, <laughs> had to crowbar Bridgerton reference into <laughs> this press release for, I don't know, like a filing cabinet. <laughs> it is always sometimes, you know, they, it's very creative the way that PRs can do it. But I always feel bad for the PRs because you know, I'm sure the person writing a Bridgerton related press release for a filing cabinet knows that this is not exactly <laughs> Nobel Prize winning work. But cultivating good relationships with PRs as a journalist, you never know when that PR is going to come back and say, oh, we really need something to, we really need a journalist to host this kind of in-house event. Can you do mm -hmm. it for this fee? Or we really need a journalist to write um, this artist bio. Can you do it? So I think it's always worth like having good relationships with people in your industry um, because you never know when it's going to come back. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that made me think of um, when I spoke to Moya Lothian McLean for a previous episode, she said, you know, most freelance journalists have 
different things that they're doing on the side you know they have a staff job or they have like a regular gig that's not really spoken about um are there any kind of similar avenues that you think freelance journalists have as, as side hustles I do a lot of public speaking mm-hmm. um well before the pandemic obviously now I do a lot of speaking on zoom um and that's always been really fun and for the amount of work that you put in if you really enjoy it um you can prepare quite quickly and um, because panels are really kind of interesting easy to do um if you don't have stage fright uh, they're very good opportunities to like meet people and build contacts as well um and i've always found that to be one of the more lucrative parts mm-hmm. of my freelancing doing public speaking um it's definitely i guess not for everyone because i know some i know some people have stage fright they prefer not to do public speaking but i've always really enjoyed it and i think once you once people know that you're a safe pair of hands that you're not going to uh you know freak out on stage <laughs> or you know run away um they keep coming back to you to ask you to, to do more hosting to do more moderating of panels um sometimes you can get in amazing opportunities like the other year in 2019 yeah 20, i think it was 2019 in 2019 i got flown out to sydney uh for a literary festival to just sit on a panel and also do a talk that was you know amazing i would never ever have gone to australia if it had been for that opportunity so it's really good and it really opens up doors so if you think that you're the kind of person who would really live off the pressure of doing a panel or having hosting a talk i would definitely encourage you to seek it out mm-hmm. how did you first start getting involved in that kind of public speaking so the first time i did it was through my old employer dazed and mm-hmm. dazed at the time uh was going to south by southwest which is a huge tech and music festival in austin texas and they needed people to kind of host panels and do on stage interviews with the creators they'd lined up and so i ended up doing a q&a on stage with nicola formachetti who used to be the head of diesel in front of like 600 people in this massive convention hall so that was very much a baptism of fire mm-hmm. um, and after that they started kind of throwing me things so you know days would get me on to do a panel that was sponsored by a big brand and they're in store to launch a new product and then from there uh people would approach me so i think it was, some, was something that came out in house and then eventually once you start doing more and more of it people mm-hmm. start approaching you yeah yeah that's really good advice and um, and you mentioned working for dazed and you were the digital news editor um what was what was that role like it was a really interesting role because and i feel like a lot of people don't realize this is what fashion magazines used to be like because you know nowadays you have you know fashion magazines posting memes about the weekend and stuff like that mm-hmm. but back when i started at dazed fashion magazines were quite aloof and they were very much not part of the internet conversation or the internet discourse if you want to call it that way today um they were very much completely limited by their print cycle so you know they would come out every month or every other month and that would be it there would be nothing they would kind of use their instagram channels or you know twitter less often to kind of post editorials and the photos they published in a magazine that would be it 
you know, so it was very much a kind of walled off approach to interacting with their audience on social. Um, and then when they decided to have a news desk, I think that was their kind of, under, that was their realization that the news cycle in fashion and music and culture was becoming 24 hours. So it wasn't just going to stop just because your print, you know, your print issue was going to print. It was going to carry on regardless. And you had to find a way to put yourself into that news cycle and that conversation. So when I interviewed for that role, it was a completely brand new role for a desk that did not exist at the time. And I was basically like, look, you have to cultivate a voice on socials. You need to have people understand that you have a certain kind of angle and perspective on culture and what's happening on, in the world. And the way you report news should be reflective of it. So, you know, mm -hmm. you're not going to have a neutral, unbiased uh, write up of something a la the BBC because you're dazed. So I kind of started the news desk um, with that in mind. And then I ended up hiring a news writer um, and then expanding it that way. And at that point, at, when I was at Days, we were publishing like maybe five to six pieces, news pieces a day. And all of it was reacting to stuff that was happening in the news, reporting on things that had just developed. And I don't think any of it went to the magazine. So it was purely online only. Was it mainly staff written content or did you have... Lots of freelancers as well. It was mainly staff writing content. So a mm -hmm. lot of it was written by me and the staff writer. Um, occasionally, I would commission features from freelancers, but not very much. And mm -hmm. um, basically, the bread and butter was just new stuff. When working as an editor, how much of it is editing and how much of it is writing your own stuff? Mm, back when I was at Dazed or at Vice yeah, now? Yeah, um, at Dazed. So at Dazed, as an editor there, I was mainly writing and delegating stuff to be written up to my staff writer. So a lot of it was kind of writing and editing um, and trying to figure out what the tone of voice would be on certain issues and topics. Um, and I kind of think that at the time, a lot of places just weren't really doing it. Um, and there was a lot of kind of talking at the magazine and publication at a time of being like well is this is this a story that we should be covering is this a story that is like right for us um and I kind of my approach was always if a dazed reader is talking about it or discussing it with their friends we should be covering it no matter mm -hmm. what it is so that meant we would cover everything from you know freaky things happening on google maps that would then later on go and inspire like an artist maybe to fashion designers leaving a house and joining another one mm -hmm. And in the last few years, there's been obviously the the media industry has changed so much. You know, there's been lots of layoffs from big companies and things like that. Have you seen big changes in the way journalists work in the workplace just in the last few years? I think there's less, way less job security and people are really aware of that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think maybe 20 years ago, if you got a job on a paper, you basically had a job for life and you would just climb up the pole until you had to retire, basically, or until you burnt out and left. Um, I think now there's a much bigger understanding that if you want your career to progress, you need to jump around and you need to try out different things. Um, so there's much less of a job for life mentality and a lot more of people moving around to try and further their career because that's essentially the shape my career has taken. A lot of people, a lot more people now are freelance as well. 
do you think there's more of a budget now for freelance than there was before or do you think it's kind of stayed pretty similar I mean in my experience I think that teams have editorial desks and teams have shrunk which basically means that more of the content is being found out to freelancers mm-hmm. um and I think that is that reflected in the budgets I think it's reflected in the budget that I work with but I wouldn't presume to speak for other editors I feel mm-hmm. like nowadays there are more editors and a lot fewer reporters and writers which is a shame because sometimes I feel like it should be the other way around and you you obviously you're the executive editor of Vice and you've been the editor since 2015 is that right so I was the editor of Broadly UK mm-hmm. from 2015 and okay. up until 2019 I think and then for the last two years I've been exec editor at Vice UK. Okay and what does that role entail? I manage a team of associate editors and feature editors um, and I also commission from my own team of freelancers um, and edit across the entire kind of editorial desk so I'll edit everything from culture to current affairs to features um, and I'll also present stuff for Vice. So I'm the presenter of Empires of Dirt, which is a short form video series, working on long form documentaries for Vice as well. Um, Basically doing a little bit of everything. I think Vice is quite unique in the sense that they don't silo you off if you just work with text. You know, they are very open to you working across different mediums. So I've done podcasts for Vice. Um, I did a podcast called My First Time, which is about sex and dating. And I also present video. So you can get the chance to try out a lot of very different things where I am. Yeah, that's definitely such a wide range. Um, Are people still pitching you directly or is it other editors that they pitch? People still pitch me directly. So I work with people um, that I've commissioned for years. Um, I'm also really open to receiving pitches from younger journalists as well. And, you know, journalists in general, um, what I really love getting a pitch for is a really, really solid idea for a well-reported story. Um, and it ties back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, younger journalists, uh, you have to cultivate the skills of reporting. Um, nothing kind of makes me love a pitch more than if I get it and I can see the entire story and it's a feature. Um, I, can, I know who they're going to speak to. I know what the kind of case studies are going to be and the interviewees are going to be I know know the angle I can just see it in my head like Mm -hmm. you receive a pitch like that as the dream are there any other pitching tips you would give to freelance journalists I would say I mean going from like the basic to the more obscure the basic stuff like don't write the story for me and attach it as a word doc um because Mm -hmm. that kind of to me implies that you're sending it out to everyone please don't get my name or publication wrong um because that actually happens a lot more than people think and it's always a little bit sad when you receive an interview uh when you receive a pitch directed to zoe at diva magazine or something like that (laughs) um don't pitch on Friday afternoons because I feel mm. like, and I maybe speak for a lot of editors when I say our brain completely clocks off by about 2 p.m. on a Friday. Um, chase up, but don't kind of be relentless. Um, sometimes I get people who don't even chase up with a kind of polite, hey, just checking in on the story. Um, if it's not for you, don't worry. I'll be back in touch with more ideas. 
um, I, I recently got someone chasing up a pitch by just relentlessly emailing the same copy and pasted pitch over and over again in the same email chain, mm. which felt kind of borderline harassment, to be honest. Um, it was quite sinister. Uh, please don't do that. Uh, the more obscure end of pitching tips. Uh, let me have a think. I would say don't give up if someone doesn't come back to you or someone says blanket no. Like I've started saying to other to journalists who like pitch me, I'm sorry, this isn't a story for Vice UK, but this is could be a story for these other publications. You know, take that feedback on board and try them out. Just because an idea has been rejected by one publication doesn't mean that another place won't accept it because you never know the reasons why a publication might turn down a pitch. If an editor has time and they're really nice, they will explain it to you. But sometimes it can come down to something as simple as we've already got someone in-house working on it. Or there's another editor who's literally just commissioned something on the same lines so we can't accept it. It doesn't mean your story is just terrible and you're a bad journalist. You can always find a home for some for a story if you try hard enough, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that people don't people need to take rejection like that less seriously because it's almost never about you. Um, most editors have a bazillion other things that they're juggling in their heads. Everything from, you know, we don't have any more budget to commission stories at the end of the month, so I'm just going to ignore all pitch emails. Or we already have someone working on this story, so I'm afraid it's a no. Or this doesn't fit into our new editorial campaign or our new editorial priorities. So while we might have commissioned it a year ago, it doesn't really suit us, suit us right now. You know, these are things that you can't control and you can't predict. So just because they say no to your story doesn't mean that it's dead in the water. Mm -hmm. What do you think is a reasonable amount of time for someone to wait before they, they chase you up? I would say a week and a half. Okay. Because, uh, so for Vice, for instance, our commissioning meeting is every week. Um, sometimes it jumps about a few days if people can, if some people can't make it. Um, sometimes people take a few days to wade through all the pitches and get back with replies to people. So I always think it takes about like a week and a half, unless it's something super, super newsy, super timely, in which case, you know, chase up maybe two or three days after. But if you don't hear back, it probably means it's not one mm -hmm. for us. Would you say the maximum amount of times, what would you say is the maximum amount of times that someone should um, email back about a pitch? I would say, and, and this is really subjective, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is just uh, my approach. I would say chasing up twice is probably the maximum amount. Mm -hmm. So the first time you chase up and be like, hey, just checking in, you got this. Let me know if you have any questions. would love to write this up for you guys. You know, that kind of stuff. And then the third time, a week later, maybe, is, hey, haven't heard from you. Um, don't worry if this isn't one. I'll be in touch with more pitches. Um, if I don't hear back from you, I'll probably pitch this to another publication, but I will be back in touch with more ideas. Okay. You know, something like that. Yeah. I think then that keeps the conversation going. And, you know, there have been times when I couldn't get to a pitch or respond to it, but then someone said, I'll be back in touch with more pitches. And you're like, oh, okay, you know, this person's going to get back in touch anyway. So I don't need to kind of have to worry about explaining to them why mm. we didn't go for their idea this time around. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, and when you've commissioned some someone to write something, Obviously, it'll be, you know, so dependent on the story, but for like a typical feature, how long would you normally give someone or expect them to, to write it up in? So I usually give people between 
four days to a week, mm-hmm. mostly a week, um, especially if it's not time sensitive. Um, and then it also depends on, you know, the other stuff that I'm working on and editing. So if I've got a whole bunch of features that I'm editing, you know, there's no point in me asking someone to file within a week because it's just going to go um, on the edit pal behind everything else that needs to be edited first. So I think like the average amount of time I give people is between four days to a week, but depending on, you know, my schedule and my workload. Mm-hmm. And do you have any tips for people that are trying to um, agree on a rate with an editor? I think if you want to negotiate a rate, I always welcome it. Um, we have quite a flat rate of about 25p per word. So if you're, if you're commissioned for like a, a 1200 word piece, you will get paid 300 quid. Um, that depends and is flexible depending on the story. So for instance, if a story is like, a really, really in-depth investigation. So we're talking about a data investigation or something like that, that requires a lot of legwork before you even get to producing the words themselves. We usually have a higher rate for that. So if it's like an investigation, mm-hmm. but that's kind of contingent on a bunch of things like budget, um, how much budget the editor's working with, um, you know, time frame, how long is it going to take, uh, everything from, you know, how much, how much, other like resources are you going to need to commission around it so you know will you have to commission an illustrator freelance to do a bunch of illustrations in which case the budget you're working with for the story is much lower so it's kind of all up for grabs really mm-hmm. and you know I don't get I mean I feel like a lot of people are worried that if they ask for more money then editors just going to turn around and be like well see you you know and kind of blacklist them or something like that but I don't think so I mean like if someone comes back to me and says, can you do it for more money? And I look at my budget and there's no money. I'll just tell them, you know, mm-hmm. and if they decide to then take it somewhere else, I mean, fair play. I've been a freelancer myself, so I kind of understand, you know, the need to kind of take a story to a place that might pay more money for what you're doing. Um, but I, you know, if people are ever scared about negotiating for more money, I would say just give it a try. Like there's no harm in trying. What is the editing process like in terms of how you explain that to freelancers like do you send them edits or do you edit it yourself so I usually work off google docs mm-hmm. and I will I mean it depends from feature to feature to be honest I I edit mainly in google docs and um, because I find that the comment function there is the most readable compared to microsoft word or editing like in the body of an email um if there's anything that I don't understand that needs to be clarified or that could be, that needs heavy amendments, um, I will flag that in Google Docs as a comment and we'll just say, can you get to this? Um, and if you have any questions about it, re- respond to that amendment in the Google Doc question thread. Um, if it's just kind of quite simple stuff, like, you know, we won't use the word, you know, we don't use American spelling. So I will just correct any American spellings myself without requesting someone to go in and do that mm-hmm. for themselves. Um, if I take a look at a feature and it just needs a big rewrite and structurally it doesn't quite work and things need to be rejigged or they need to go out and interview more people, I will just send them that feedback in an email. So okay. like a Google Doc itself is where we, I get down to the nitty gritty of having to change stuff with people and asking them questions 
But if, you know, a feature comes in and it's not quite there and needs a lot more work, I will just go back to them in email and say, you know, this is my feedback. Can you go back and have another whack at it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's all really interesting. Um, When are you, do you still um, pitch other publications or is it mainly Vice that you write for at the moment? I don't really pitch that many publications now because I am working on a bunch of other kind Mm -hmm. of longer term projects for books and podcasts. So I don't tend to like pitch out to other publications as much as I used to. Um, The other thing is that if you're a journalist who's kind of, I guess you might say mildly online um, or active on social media, sometimes editors will just approach you to write stuff up. So for instance, I tweeted a while back about watching I May Destroy You um, and basically was basically said it's an amazing show because it is um, and frankly it's a travesty it wasn't nominated for any Globe mm-hmm. Globes but that's my soapbox um, I tweeted about uh, I May Destroy You back when it first started airing and on the basis of that an editor for British Vogue approached me and asked if I wanted to write a review for the series and what I thought about it and the way it portrayed um, date rape so that's also another thing that um, journalists can do you know put your ideas and your opinions out there and if you're followed by the right people um or if it gets enough traction online you will get approached to write stuff up Mm -hmm. when people are pitching editors would you would you recommend that they just pitch one person at a time yeah I would say just pitch one person at a time um just because I think that focuses you on pitching the right story and the right angle for the right publication and I think that's an art in itself because I get so many pitches every day where I look at it and I think this is not this isn't a story for Vice but it's a story for something else for somewhere else you know this could go in something like Monaco or Huck or Refinery 29 or Guardian Weekend or Dazed or ID but it just isn't one for us mm-hmm. um, and I think that if you pitch an editor individually it really makes you think about what is it about that story works for that particular publication. Um, And it also stops you from making, you know, rookie errors like accidentally emailing everyone on a CC chain from different (laughs) publications so everyone can see who each other are. Um, And I also think that it's best to not email different editors at the same publication because I've been emailed in on email chains with various editors from across Vice and inevitably the thing that happens is people are like oh Zing's going to reply to it while I'm thinking oh someone else is going to reply to it so Mm -hmm. then nobody replies to it so I think that that's also something that you should be wary of you know don't try and email the same pitch to a whole bunch of same the same editors at the same publication. Mm -hmm. Yeah that's really good advice and you are also the author of a series of books called Forgotten Women um, can you just talk me through what the books are about and why you decided to write them? So Forgotten Women is a book series of four books. Um, the writers, the artists, the leaders and the scientists. And they're kind of illustrated histories of profiles of women who have been forgotten over time, even though in their age and in their time period, they were enormously well known and enormously successful and influential. Um, And just enormously interesting, to be honest, which is why I was attracted to writing the series in the first place. And I was approached by Octopus Publishing. Um, An editor there kind of said, I really love your voice. I love everything you're doing at Broadly. Um, Have you ever considered writing books? And I went on this big 
ramble about how I loved women's history and you know especially the forgotten side of history and the unknown side of um, women's accomplishments and achievements and from there they kind of approached me again and said well we're starting to think about this book series called Forgotten Women would you like to help us develop it so I actually worked with them quite closely to develop the approach and um, the creation of women as well as the artistic approach um, even the book cover it was really collaborative and it was something that I really enjoyed but if it wasn't for you know that one coffee with um, Romley, Mo Romley Morgan who was the editor at the time um, it just would not have happened. Mm -hmm. What was your writing process like? It was relentless because <laughs> the delivery schedule was pretty relentless um, I essentially wrote all four books uh, in a year um, and I was basically doing my full-time job at Vice, clocking off for the evening, having dinner, then sitting down and writing between about like 9 p.m. to midnight and then going wow, yeah, yeah, and then going out on the weekends to the British Library because they had, you know, archive material and all the resources I needed. Um, and then doing like a full day of work there from Saturday and Sunday. So 10 to six or whatever the BL closes. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's quite common among authors that they often write their books while they're working full time? I think so. I think especially a lot of journalist authors, they write mm -hmm. their books fitted in around their day job. And it was... I'm not going to lie, it was pretty intense. It was pretty yeah. intense. I would not recommend it to anyone. But I also think that um, the the fact that I was on a, such a strict deadline worked out for me because I'm the kind of person who needs a looming deadline to be productive. Mm. So that helped. Um, and also, I think the thing that I always tell journalists who are being approached to write books by publishers is that the publishing industry works on such a different time frame to uh, journalism. In journalism, if you don't file your article at midday on the dot that your editor has requested you are like done they are like this person is untrustworthy I'm never working with them again you know you can get really like irritable editors who are like this person is has not done the work I'm never going to answer another email mm -hmm. um, from them but in publishing it just seemed so much more relaxed I actually think my publishers were quite shocked when I handed in the manuscripts on time um, <laughs> and there was like, this like standoff moment where they were like you've done it and I was like yes I've done it it was like a spider-man pointing me um, and they were like you did the manuscripts I was like yeah because you told me to do the manuscripts um, so every time an author goes into a journalist every time a journalist goes into publishing I'm like by the way the deadlines in publishing are flexible just to warn you because so you don't kill yourself when trying to write all these books. That's great. Um, is there any other um, advice you would give to authors or wannabe authors? I would say, you know, the writing of the book and doing the edits and everything is one part of producing the book. The other part is publicity, which in mm. and of itself is a separate job completely. So, you know, I was promoting the book at uh, literary festivals, speaking at, you know, events, um, doing book launches, and that was a whole other thing. So that was kind of really exciting for me because I really like public speaking. But if you're the kind of journalist who's like, I want to produce a book and that's it and that's done, um, you need to prepare yourself for the, like the publicity circuit and the tour because that's how you get people to buy your mm -hmm. book, like through like promotion. Um, 
So I think that's one thing I would say to people who are getting into book writing. Um, and I think, what else? I would, I would say that, you know, take time for yourself and to appreciate what you've done. I think if you're, and I see this a lot with journalists writing books, it's like they write one book and they're like, okay, on to the next one. Um, just take time out to celebrate what you've done because I think um, a lot of journalists, the mentality is like, hustle, 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 go, go, go. And I wish I'd done this at the end of Forgotten Women. I wish I'd taken stock and been like, actually what you've done has been amazing. You've done four books. Um, you've had people approach you to write things from all kinds of different publications. Your books are stocked in bookstores, you know, not just in London, but in New York, in Singapore, in Australia. Um, that's an achievement worth celebrating. But because my mentality has always been go, go, go. I don't feel like I took enough time to be like, oh, wow, well done. Yeah. You, yeah, you've got so many projects on the go. You're also a host uh, on BBC Sounds. How did you get involved doing that? So I approached BBC Sounds. Actually, so BBC Sounds, one of the commissioners actually approached me and we had another coffee um, and she asked if I had any ideas about you know podcasts basically like anything I wanted to talk about and I pitched this idea of United Zingdom to them at the time I'd already done Obsessed with Killing Eve so I wasn't completely unknown to the BBC Sounds team and so United Zingdom is really different from Obsessed with Killing Eve. Obsessed with is essentially a TV review format whereas United Zingdom is kind of a tour through the UK speaking to various different people about what it means to be British so I was literally going around various bits of the UK with a producer, you know, talking to people on farms, you know, in cafes, in random BBC offices about what their idea of British identity was. So it's really different and it's much more personal because Obsessed With is two hosts kind of shooting the shit and having fun and talking about their favourite show. Whereas United Kingdom was based on a really personal experience of mine in that uh, I've been in the UK as an immigrant for 10 odd years now, and I was reaching a point where I could apply for citizenship, but didn't quite know what that even meant symbolically and, you know, as a way of identifying myself, you know, what does it mean to be British, especially because I had to give up my Singapore passport in mm -hmm. order to become British because Singapore does not allow for dual nationality. So it came from a really, really personal place. And I think that a lot of people really responded to that. I think a lot of the time discussions about identity get quite polarized and people project things and read things into stuff that people are saying when they might not actually be implying it or saying it in a way that other people understand it to be. So I feel like by coming to people and saying, well, you know, I've got this problem. Should I become British or should I just stay Singaporean? A lot of people opened up and it was really, really insightful and actually quite touching. I remember interviewing uh, something Wong, who's, from mm. RuPaul's Drag Race yeah. from season one. And she was saying that, you know, she's from Birmingham. And she said that the thing that made her proud to be British and particularly from Birmingham was the fact that she could go down a high street in Birmingham and hear a ton of different languages and smell a ton of different cuisines being cooked. And that to her felt like home, which I thought was actually quite a low key radical thing to say, considering that something like multiculturalism is so kind of attacked by the mainstream press, but it's said in the format of something that is very friendly, very accessible, and that is really hard to disagree with. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like, um, I was looking at it earlier, it sounds like a really interesting series and I like that it was so, you know, you'd gone across the whole of the UK and visited loads of different cities. Um, Yeah, so just to finish things off, what general advice would you give to aspiring journalists? If you're an aspiring journalist, I would say experiment with a whole bunch of different things. Um, Everything from writing to editing to producing to podcasting to hosting, just try everything out. And even within those different skill sets, you can find a huge amount of variation. So if you're interested in podcasting, try out being a try being a producer, try being a host, you know, if you're into writing, try being a reviewer, try being a critic, try being a feature writer, try being a reporter. There's a huge amount of variation in what journalism actually is. And I think that a lot of times people look at the journalists who are, you know, big on social media or on the news all the time or in newspapers with their byline and they think that that's the only way you can succeed as a journalist. You know, I've got so many friends who are sub-editors and that never, ever gets talked about. You know, they're the Mm -hmm. people who will be crafting headlines and making sure that people have their facts right in an article and basically being an editor. um, And they are the people responsible. If you have a sub-editor on a publication, they're responsible ultimately for the publication's tone of voice and approach. That's a really powerful job to have. And yet it's also something that not a lot of people appreciate or know about when they think about getting into journalism. So if you can't see yourself doing the kind of classic, I'm a Twitter commentator, I'm writing opinion pieces for The Guardian, don't worry, because journalism is so wide and so deep. There is a place for people, for everyone, basically, no matter what you're interested in or what your skill set is. And I think that in order to kind of find your place, you just have to try as many different things as possible. Like, I had no idea when I started out doing magazine journalism that I would end up doing so much public speaking and panels and moderating. But it's something that turns out I really, really love and I really enjoy. So always, always keep trying stuff out. Always, always keep experimenting and doing something new. That was journalist and author Zing Sing. You can find her on Twitter at Miss Sing and Instagram at Miss underscore Zing. Her Forgotten Women series can also be purchased everywhere you find books. I'll be back with another episode in two weeks. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to support the podcast, you can give a small donation on coffee at ko-fi.com slash she's creative pod. You can find the podcast on social media at she's creative pod and I'm on social media at underscore Claire Hutch. See you next time.